So we're going to get the second half of what we started last week. Last week we started this text where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And uh, we looked at how, how Jesus, we kind of looked at the stage being set, how Jesus set things up, uh, the way that he waited with his disciples. He waited long enough to make sure that it was positively 100% Lazarus was dead. In fact, he'd been in the tomb for four days. There was no way you could explain that away. And he did that out of love to, so that people would see how powerful the miracle was. And you see his interactions with the first of the sisters, Martha. We looked at that last week. And he, he wanted her to see, not just have some abstract thought of the hope of the future resurrection. He, he wanted her to see that he was the resurrection. That the resurrection had come. So we're going to pick up the rest of it now. Jesus' interaction with Mary, the raising of Lazarus, <clears throat> and then also the response as we get through that. Now, this is one of those stories that's so well-known in Scripture that you already know where it's going. We've already given the end away. Lazarus, who is dead, is going to be alive. Uh, we know that. So there's a couple of things that we want to think about then and give some careful thought to. There's going to be a couple of things that are almost uh, we need to tune into. They're, they're, they, they, they help us understand why John put this story in. One of them is this. You need to see the response to Jesus as we go through this. And remember what we said, that, that, that throughout John's gospel, Jesus, uh, throughout all of the gospels and Jesus' earthly ministry, but what you see is the polarizing response to who Jesus is. And we've talked about how difficult this is for us to grasp because especially if you've grown up in the Christian church, you, you love Jesus, you adore Jesus, you have positive reaction to who Jesus is. But remember, it wasn't that way for everybody. And as Jesus went through his ministry, the response was polarizing. Some people loved him. Some people were ready to crown him as the Messiah. Some people thought he was the answer to their problem with Rome. And other people despised him. They were angered by him. They were ready to crucify him is eventually what they would do. So why such a polarizing response? And think about it. You, you remember what that polarizing response is like. So you remember last year when the Eagles won the Super Bowl and if any of you, a few of you went to the parade in Philadelphia and I was watching on TV and you see the aerial footage of the crowds, thousands, right? Thousands cheering and adoring the Eagles. It would be a mistake to think that the response of Philadelphia was true across the nation. Could you imagine, since they beat the Patriots, if they took that parade to Boston, right? What would that be like? Or worse, Dallas, if they decided to do their Super Bowl parade, right? Remember, that's what Jesus is like. That kind of polarizing, you know, think of the North Jersey, South Jersey things. Is it Taylor ham or pork roll? I don't know of anyone that's been killed in that dispute, but you know which side of that dispute you're on, right? Uh, uh, that's, that's who you've got to think of when it comes to Jesus and this polarizing figure. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Okay? The other thing that we need to tune into here and think about, and we so well know this story as the resurrection of Lazarus, this is not about Lazarus. This is not about the resurrection of Lazarus. Think about this account. You've heard some of the words of Martha already. This week we're going to look at the words of Mary. Lazarus doesn't, like he gets no words. This is the guy who was dead and raised to life and like he's kind of like this incidental fact in the story. And why? 
I'm not going to answer it yet, but think about some of these things and what is John doing when he puts this story in here and what is it that we're supposed to take away from this as we start walking through the text. So what, what, what is going on? Especially remember, we said this is, John is piecing together signs to point who Jesus is and we're kind of going to bring an end to the first half of the book. The raising of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus is kind of the culmination, the capstone of everything that's been taking place to this point. And what is John accomplishing and showing us as he brings us to some of these conclusions? So let's start in verse 28. Jesus has finished his interaction with Martha. And, and so in verse 28, when it says, when she had said this, this is speaking of Martha, she goes back to her sister. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. So Martha and uh, Jesus had their interaction, and here Martha's probably trying to give Jesus the opportunity, give Mary the opportunity to interact with Jesus before all the crowds gather, uh, you know, before he fully comes into town and people recognize who he is and they get mobbed. So perhaps Perhaps Mary would get the chance to have a, a quiet conversation with Jesus, but uh, whatever her attempt was, it doesn't work because as soon as she hears this, she jumps up quickly and there were uh, mourners there with her, both friends and paid professional mourners. Remember we said last week that this was like a communal affair of mourning and it would have been a big public event. And as Mary goes to see Jesus, some of the crowd then follows and they go out with her. So go to verse 32. Now when Mary Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is the exact same thing that Martha said just a few verses earlier. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, the crowd gathers, and there's, there's wailing, and there's weeping, and there's sorrow over the death, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And this is one of those verses of scripture that we have heard over and over. And you see the humanity of Jesus and the raw emotion where he weeps over death. He weeps at the sorrow. What does it mean that he was deeply moved? We're actually going to come back and talk about that later. There's more going on here than just sorrow. But there is sorrow. And Jesus sees the sorrow and he weeps for the death of his friend. He weeps for um, uh, Mary and Martha in their sorrow and he comes to the tomb and he weeps. Now notice the response. Notice a couple different responses then in verse 36 and 37. So, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them see his weeping and say, look, this... This, this man, Jesus, really loved Lazarus. And others said, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And what you see is so interesting that they recognize the power of Jesus. He's been able to open the eyes of the blind. Shouldn't he have been able to keep this man from dying? And somehow it doesn't seem to enter into their radar that couldn't he also raise a man from the dead? And you see a few different responses. Some say that he loved him. Others say, well, why couldn't he, if he has power to open the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? And so there's questions as to who Jesus is and what is his power and, and what is the extent of his power. So then look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, same word as verse 33 when we come back to that, keep that in mind, 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now, at this point, Martha raises an objection, and you can read through some of the verses. Remember, we said last week as we looked at this that you see Martha's realization that, yes, someday Lazarus will be raised on the final day. She believes in the resurrection. In fact, she even makes a statement that she believes Jesus is the Messiah. But, but what she didn't put together by raising this objection, she's saying, Lord, he, he's been in the tomb for four days. There's going to be an odor. He stinks. She's saying, do you, why are you opening the... Don't do that. Bad idea. Well, she doesn't realize that Jesus has the power over life and death. And not only is the hope of the resurrection certain, but the resurrection has come and he has the ability to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so you, you see then Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and he thanks the Father for hearing him. There's more in that prayer than we have time to look at this morning. But, but you see Jesus uh, uh, acknowledge the Father's work here. There's echoes back to John chapter 5. Remember when in John 5, Jesus and the, the Father and the Son and their relationship is highlighted that the Son can do nothing but what the Father wills. And, and you see some of that. And here you see Jesus praying, Father, I thank you for hearing me. And he's going to give life to the dead. And so after he prays these things, you look at what he says in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out with, with a shout of authority. He has the authority to speak these words, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What an incredible truth. And when Martha raises her objection in a few of those verses we skipped over, Jesus says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? And what was Jesus able to do? He was able to speak into death and with his words bring Lazarus back to life. And Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb. So again, echoing back to John chapter 5, if you want to flip back there, these are the same, the same section of Scripture I just referenced, speaking of the relationship to God and the Son. But look at John chapter 5, verse 25. John chapter 5, verse 25 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Come down to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So John's tying this together and he was helping them to see. You, you remember what Jesus said. He said an hour was coming, speaking of the final resurrection, when the dead would hear the voice of the Son of God and rise that the dead would have life. And in a foreshadow of that, in a taste of that, here's an instance where Lazarus, who was dead, hears the voice of the Son of God, and he's raised to life. God has that power to be able to speak into death and raise Lazarus to new life. This, John's tying it together. He's saying, this, see these signs? This is who Jesus is. This is why he's the Messiah. This is why you need to know and understand. So how would people respond to that? Look then at verse 45. 
So Lazarus comes walking out. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and who had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, here's two different responses. But before we can even talk about what is said here in the responses, we, we need to talk about what isn't said. We almost need to stop and say, John, you forgot something, right? So look at verse 43, 44, 45. Lazarus is raised to new life. He walks out of the tomb. John says, unbind him and let him go. No more, no more Lazarus. Like, isn't, can't there, if John is a historian and a reporter and someone who's telling us a story, can we get a word from the guy who was dead and is now alive? What was it like? Right? I mean, uh, it's a good thing John wasn't writing in our day and age, right? With all of these heaven tourism books and people who claim to have gone to the other side and come back and you have these crooks that, I mean, authors that write these books and tell the stories of what happened. Did I say that out loud? If you're looking for books to read, I think there's a better place to start than that genre of books. But uh, John, John glances over it. I mean, we, we don't hear from Lazarus anymore. Uh, he fades into the background. Lazarus is not the point of this story. A guy who was dead and raised to life, his sisters get quoted. He gets nothing. Why? The story's not about him. The story is about the one who raised him from the dead back to life. And that's why John glances over it. And so then he goes right on to the way people reacted to Lazarus. Excuse me, to the way that people reacted to Jesus. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So some people see this, and, and they're in the crowds that are rejoicing. Yes, Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. We're the, he's the one that we love. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, you need to understand some of the political background that's going on here because this is a very loaded thing that's taking place. To just go and tell the Pharisees, this was not inconsequential. Remember there, as we said through these chapters in the first part of the book, the conflict is escalating. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day are angry at who Jesus is. And so some people see what Jesus did and they take that as further evidence for their faith. Other people see and they say, this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. And they take that information to the religious leaders of the day. So look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Pharisees already aren't happy with Jesus and they, they get word about this report and the Pharisees decide, well, we need to gather together the council. They need to gather, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees get together. That word for council is the Sanhedrin. That would be the highest Jewish court of the day. So to understand the significance of this, we need a little bit of a political, uh, 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 Jewish-Roman political history lesson. 
Remember when we talk about the Jews waiting for the Messiah, the Jews waiting for the overthrow of Rome? Remember that's not like a universal feeling. There would be a spectrum, okay? If you were a Jew and alive that day, there's a spectrum that you fall within in, in terms of what your attitude towards Rome is. Okay, so over here on this side of the spectrum, you have like the Herodians, and then you have the Sadducees, and then you have the Pharisees, and these are pro-Roman on this side. The Pharisees are right in the middle. They're still kind of anti-Roman, but they're willing to get involved in politics. But, but the Sadducees are a little bit more pro-Roman, and the Herodians are quite pro-Roman. So remember that though Rome is in control, they kind of allow uh, the, the, the Jews to exist somewhat of an independent nation, somewhat to have their own authority. Therefore, the Sanhedrin is this Jewish court that has authority because Rome says it has authority. It's a delegated authority, right? And so some realized if we want power from Rome, if we want to be important in the Jewish spectrum, we got to play the political game to stay in Rome's good favors and to be able to have the power that they say we have. So the Sanhedrin being the highest political court, most of them were made up of Sadducees and the high priest that led that group would have especially been on the pro-Roman side. It's over here on this side of the spectrum, the Essenes, they would have just kind of retreated from culture and the Zealots, remember that when we get to the crucifixion, the Zealots were willing to violate violently overthrow Rome. And the common people just wanted Rome gone. Like, let's, let's overthrow Rome, whatever it takes. But they had to go through some of the leaders within their own political system. And some of them actually lived pretty comfortable lives. Uh, they, 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 they kind of relished the position that Rome gave them. And so when Jesus comes and people begin proclaiming he's the Messiah, well, now this is going to threaten some of the religious leaders. This is going to threaten the Pharisees. This is going to threaten the Sadducees. And they gather together the members of the council of the Sanhedrin and the high priest who leads that group what do we do Jesus is gaining such popularity that if we let this go everyone is going to believe in him and the Romans will come away and take away our position their, their, their jobs are at stake here. Rome is going to come in and crush this rebellion, this uprising, and the Sadducees and the, the members of the Sanhedrin would no longer have their political titles. What do we do? Jesus has to be stopped. This is a problem, right? And here's what Caiaphas, he's, he's the high priest that year. He actually was a high priest for a number of years, almost two decades. He would have been skilled in his uh, position and the things he accomplished politically. And he says to them, you know nothing at all. You don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you understand, verse 50, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas looks at the situation and he realizes and says something incredibly profound that he probably didn't even understand the full implication of. What he said was true both from God's perspective... It was true in, in God's perspective, but Caiaphas meant it in an entirely different way. He said, look, if we want to keep our nation, if we want to keep our place, this man has to die. It's better for him to die than that the Romans come in and wipe us all out. 
But in the providence of God, Caiaphas was saying something far more true from a salvific sense. In the plan of salvation, God knew that Jesus had to die rather than a whole nation of people be lost in rebellion against God. Jesus knew that God knew that Jesus was going to die and in a sacrificial sense he would die so that the people wouldn't have to. And coming back to John 10 with Jesus being the good shepherd and he said, I have many sheep who are not of this fold and I'm going to gather them all into one flock. Here's, here's what's going on in this statement. Uh, without even realizing it, Caiaphas is prophesying to the fact that Jesus has to die so that the people of God could be saved so that the Jews and Gentiles would be brought into salvation and have a way for their sins to be forgiven. And yet, Caiaphas didn't even understand what he was talking about. From a purely human, selfish, political standpoint, they began to make plans to kill Jesus because they didn't want to lose their place in Rome. They didn't want to lose their Jewish authority. And so you see this in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. John is bringing a close to this section. There's going to be a little bit more transition material. In fact, you'll see not only do they decide Jesus has to die, but they make plans that, that Lazarus has to be put to death as well. And you see what happens that somehow word gets back to Jesus and he realizes that it's dangerous now among the Jews. He came to his own and his own received him not. And he had to be careful because his life was at stake. And the Jews wanted to put him to death. And so you begin to understand now what is taking place. That God, that through through Jesus. God, through Jesus, raises Lazarus to new life. And there's this polarizing response. Some believe, yes, he is the Messiah, and others, others respond and say, this man is a threat. We have to do away with him. And this would be the event that would then, uh, in, in a very, very short matter of time, put Jesus himself on the cross. We're just days away from it at this point, weeks. And, and you realize now why this is so significant. So what exactly is going on in this text? Why is it so significant that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? And what was the emotion that Jesus was feeling as he saw Mary weeping, as he saw the mourners around weeping, as he stands at the entrance to the tomb and he weeps? He's deeply moved in his spirit. And as we understand some of this, you see in the big picture in the life of Jesus all, all that John is tying together to help us see how significant this event is. So come back to verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. Some of your Bibles probably have a footnote there next to deeply moved and said that you could translate that as angry. Uh, some of your Bibles translate deeply moved as groaned. Uh, deeply moved and groaned, to say that Jesus was just sorrowful, to say that he was just overcome with some kind of, um, um, 
Yeah, the, the weeping sorrow of death. It's just not going far enough with the text and what the word actually means. It, it, it could mean that Jesus was angry, that he was indignant, that Jesus looked at what was taking place and he saw what was happening and he himself was angry at all that was taking place. So B.B. Warfield, uh, uh, who both studied and taught at Princeton here in New Jersey in the early 1900s, said it this way. What John tells us in point of fact is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. Well, if Jesus is angry, what is he angry at? Right? And you see that Jesus is, yes, he's sorrowful for the death of his friend and that it's causing his friends to weep. But he's looking, he's not just sorry that Lazarus is dead. He had already proclaimed that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. There's something bigger going on here. Jesus is looking at the unbelief of the people that don't yet recognize who he is. He's looking at all of death itself. He's realizing that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is the enemy. That's the, what Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, that death is the enemy. It's the last enemy to be defeated. And here's Jesus, and he's seeing death, and he's seeing the enemy, and he's seeing all that it's doing to destroy everything that he created He's angry. He's moved. He's indignant in his spirit. This is not right. You see, when God originally created the world, everything was perfect. It was paradise, and sin so quickly distorted everything that God had made. And in the very beginning, there's this promise that someday a seed of the woman, a seed of Eve, Jesus Christ himself would come and would deliver the death blow of death itself. And so Jesus is standing here uh, face to face with the enemy, with death. This is, the, this is the enemy he had come to destroy. This is the enemy that he had come to do battle with. And so B.B. Warfield goes on and he says this. This is a long quote, but it explain, helps explain some of everything that's going on in this passage. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and, hill, death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for us and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought out our redemption. 
Jesus came to do battle with death. And in just a very short number of days, he would be standing at the cross himself and he would be put on that cross and he would enter a tomb. He willingly called Lazarus out of a tomb, knowing that that action would cause the religious leaders of the day to crucify him. And he entered a tomb to deal the decisive victory blow to death. The enemy, this is what Jesus had come to do. Uh, uh, Jeff Bowen has taught through this passage, and I've picked his brain. I love the way that he says it, that in this instance, what Jesus is doing is he's putting death on notice. Death's days are numbered, right? And Jesus has come to secure that victory. And that's why this story is not about Lazarus. It's about Jesus, the one who has come to conquer death. Remember John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus did for Lazarus. He laid his life down to bring Lazarus out of the grave, knowing that doing so would anger the religious leaders of the day, and he would trade his life for Lazarus, but not just in that sense of a one-to-one. His death on the cross would then secure salvation for all. For any who would place their faith and trust in Christ, they would find forgiveness of their sins knowing that, that what Christ accomplished on the cross provided salvation. And so that's what's taking place in this passage. In the culminating sign, as John has been leading everyone up to, this is who the Messiah is. This is what he came to do. He came to his own, and his own received him not, and he came to do battle with death. And just like he won the battle with Lazarus, death would would win the battle against Jesus in just a few days, but only for a few days. And Jesus would rise to new life, and Jesus won the war, right? And so we recognize and realize that this is who Jesus is. So my application for you this morning is, what do you believe about Jesus? What is your response to who this person is? He's a polarizing figure. You've got to acknowledge that. Either Jesus is who he says he was, He's truly the Son of God and His words are authoritative and your life demands a response to Him. Or He's not. You're on the other side. You're with the religious leaders of the day, those who are opposed to Jesus. Please don't take a middle ground which so many in our Western world want to do today. In the American church, it's so easy to think that, yes, I love Jesus. I've said some words that I think get me into heaven, but then I'm really just living life my own way, showing up to church occasionally. I'm not trying to submit my life to God and His word and His expectations of me that doesn't work. That's not who this Jesus is. If Jesus has the power over life and death, and if he himself is the life and the resurrection, then brothers and sisters, he demands our full response. We must follow him with the entirety of our lives. May we as a people see that that's who Jesus is. Because that's What he came to do was to deliver a salvation for all and to call unto his own those who would be his sheep. 
and to say, I am going to send you my spirit and send you forth into this world and you will be my ambassadors. You will be carrying out my plans and purposes on this world until I return for you. And so that's the Jesus that we are following. He is a polarizing figure. Which side are you on? And if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I plead with you that uh, apart on your own, apart from Christ's salvation, you have no hope. You need the death, of the death, the blood, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's his blood that provides payment for your sins. And so if you would in faith turn from your sin and trust in what Christ has done on the cross for you, you will find salvation and eternal life and forgiveness. This is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus that gives us hope even in the face of death. I was with two of our families this week in funeral services as we celebrated life and yet also had to take a contemplative look at the sorrow of death. And, and, and Jesus' confrontation with death here and the raising of Lazarus reminds us that death really is the enemy. It really is sorrowful. And yet we realize that as Christians we do not grieve as those who have no hope because of what Christ has done. He's delivered that death blow to death. May that bring you comfort as we know uh, in the year past, in the year ahead, many of us will come face to face with death in our families and those of our loved ones. May we bring the hope that Christ came to conquer this. Not just to deal with physical death, but to deal with Spiritual death because of sin. He's provided salvation, payment for sin. May God encourage us with those truths and may we as a people spread that good news to others. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we're thankful for what you've provided for us. We're thankful for this uh, account of the resurrection of Lazarus and the power that it shows that you have over death. Lord, we're thankful that you um, you keep your promises. And just as at the beginning of time, you promised to come and to crush the serpent, to crush death itself, you've done that through Jesus Christ. Lord, there are so many people that have yet to receive that news, that have yet to come to grips with it, that have yet to even hear about it. May we as your followers be so committed to you that we have a consuming passion to spread that good news to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to the ends of the world, Father, we pray in Christ's name, amen.